Wake up, computer. So as we continue our, our studies in the exile and uh, the backgrounds thereof, God's people did not listen to God's prophets. They did not heed his instruction. And so they've been carried off into captivity. Last week we looked at Babylon, and uh, what's the year that the south was taken into captivity? 586. 586, good job. And the power, I already told you just now, but who was the world power? Babylon brought it, exactly, okay? And so the northern kingdom, they, they went a little while before that, in what year? 722, when the kingdom was? Assyria. Assyria, right. So the Babylonian kingdom did not last forever, because no earthly kingdom does. Only God's kingdom lasts forever. And so, with that, we end up with studying the Persian Empire, because they came to the scene afterwards. All right. Seem to have a bit of a delay in the computer here. So, the Persian Empire, just to get a, a big picture, global perspective here, uh, was the entire area that you see there. The Persian Empire is going to pretty much be the, the largest known empire um, to date. And you kind of see this as we go through this process, is that each empire successively gets larger. And so larger and larger and larger. Eventually, you know, you get to Greece, and, you know, Greece is even larger than, than Persia was. But Persia reached all the way into um, Greece up in here and all the way into um, – Egypt over in here, and then of course all the way through Mesopotamia and to the east even into um, India, and so it was a large, large um, empire. Around 1200 BC, some Indo-European people from Central Asia moved south into West Asia. These people were called the Persians and the Medes. And uh, they spoke Iranian language. Um, the speakers of Iranian languages may have migrated into that part of Asia as early as 1500. Presumably, they were originally nomadic tribes who filtered down um, to the Iranian plateau. And so this is going to be an area in which the Medes, uh, the Persians, are going to have some interaction. And then they're going to begin to interact with the Babylonians. Um, the, the Persian Empire was much more, or much earlier than the, the Roman Empire. So you might think, like, well, the first world empire was the Roman Empire. But, you know, some people would dispute that and say, well, I mean, look at, look at what uh, Persia had and, and what they did. So um, located in the heart of the Persian highlands in the Zebros mountain range, the beginning of the city has been found to be within the time of Darius um, the Great, which we're going to talk about him in just a few minutes. So the Persian Empire, <coughs> that's just a, a big picture, all right? As you look at the, the 6th century, all right, as we're moving into this era, this map demonstrates by the different colors who is in control <coughs> um, at the, just the beginning of it, all right? And so before uh, Persia takes over, we already know that Babylon had had some interaction um, going, pushing all the way into Egypt as well. And so it shouldn't be a surprise to us that as the Medes and then the Persians uh, push in, 
It begins, as you can see down here with Persia, being a vassal of the Medes. Okay, so here on this map, they look fairly small, maybe even insignificant. And it's the Medes, okay, or Media, this whole yellow area, all right, who is kind of the world power. But as we're going to see, they're going to continue to grow um, like a little mustard seed, I guess. And they're going to cover the whole area. You still have your, your Babylonia area here, the Fertile Crescent, Egypt over here. Now, from where you're sitting, you probably cannot see um, all of the cities on here, which um, is ironic because I specifically put this map in there because it has some of the cities that I'm interested in. Um, from about 600 to 500 brought tumultuous changes in the Near East. Four major powers dominated the political at the beginning of the century. The Neo-Babylonian Empire extended across Mesopotamia and the Levant, as you just saw in the previous slide. Egypt prospered while continuing to threaten the Babylonian interests in the southern Levant area, which when I say Levant, we're talking about the area where Israel, the Palestinian area, right? Increasingly, um, th this uh, teeter-tottering effect was just continuing to blossom. The Medes north of Mesopotamia, governing their empire from the capital at, at Ekbatana, okay? So that is right all right so that's where they are governing from ekbatana all right um they extended their holdings westward into the central anatolian plateau modern turkey beyond the western limits of the median empire lay the kingdom of lydia with its capital of sardis okay we're going to come back to both of these cities and i'm going to show you some other stuff related to um, ekbatana in a, in a little bit the Lydian kings um, built Lydia into a formidable force, utilizing the gold retrieved from the Pax. Within decades, all four of these powers would be conquered by a new force, the Persians, resulting in the formation of the largest empire the Near East ever produced, the Persian Empire. For the Jews, these changes meant an end to the exile and restoration to their ancestral home. So, you can see <coughs> this, this sweeping empire that's going to sweep on through here. And the, the building and the roads and the, is that the capital or, or where they govern from. It was taken by Cyrus. Large gardens, 
an audience hall, which is pronounced, I believe, um, the Apadana, which is a short distance. I'll show you some pictures of this stuff in just a little bit. Right now, I'm just pointing out a couple of the main cities on this map. Um, Susa is where Darius initially ruled, um, not initially, but after he uh, moved his, his palace from Babylon. Darius originally ruled from Babylon once he conquered it, and then he built a palace in Susa. So Susa now is right here, and it's on this, this red line, which I'll explain. It's a road um, in just a minute. So he built this palace at Susa, and again, I'll talk a little bit about that in a, a few more minutes. Susa covers 173 acres on four different mounds or hills. Darius built a defensive wall and possibly a moat there. The palace and the um, Apadana, or that of exhibit an eclectic art style that would influence the next 200 years of Persian art. And I'll show you some pictures of um, Persepolis, I'm not sure which way you actually pronounce that, but um, is another city which is right here. So we got about four cities that we're looking at. You guys here. Um, Pasargadot is here. Then Susa is here. And then Persepolis is here. So they're right here, all four of them. So they're all over in that same section together. Susa and his palace there when he decided to move again. And so that's where he moved to. Um, this is this city's not mentioned in the Bible. But if you look through Esther and Ezra and Nehemiah, you can kind of get an understanding of, um, of what it was like. So it was large terraces, um, some 1,500 by 900 feet, partly quarried, partly stone blocks, uh, about 60 foot high defensive walls, double stairways to access the terrace. Um, atop the, the terrace, several buildings were grouped together. And then again, these audience halls, these 65 foot high fluted columns. Xerxes finished it, and then he built the Gate of All Nations entryway atop the double stairway. Um, large guardian bulls, 800 figures of nobles and military, etc. And the, the entrance gate that I'm referring to is called the Gate of the Nations, and that is uh, right there. So those Gates of the Nations are what uh, Xerxes finished. The cylinder of Nabonidus, we have talked about a couple of different times, but this is, <coughs> there we go, this is a, the clay foundation, um, cylinders were placed inside the walls of buildings, it's a record of king's achievements, so this cylinder describes the rebuilding of a ziggurat, okay, by Nabonidus, he's the last king of Babylon, you, you know mostly Belshazzar, which is the, the picture in the top right, Daniel, the handwriting on the wall. So, actually, he was ruling um, while um, his dad was out of town. So, over. And so, this cylinder here, it says he, on here that he prays for his son who was ruling Babylon while he was away. And so, that is some of the evidence that we, we have from there. <coughs> Because the internet's on, or what? I'm gonna do this though. <coughs> so this here is another image of the the Persian Empire, and on this one, uh, what you can see with the different color coding is the time periods 
as Cyrus and then his, um, his descendants are ruling in, in Persia. So the, the large area, okay, this purple area, is what Cyrus had gained by about 550 uh, BC. And so the additional territories he picked up over here in about 547, and then the, the green areas by uh, 539. And then his, um, his son, okay, Cambyses II, picked up over here. And then Xerxes added over here. So if you know anything about uh, like the movie 300, etc., um, we'll talk a little bit more about that time period a little bit further into our class today. But the interaction with the Persians and the Greeks, um, that's the area that we're talking about over here. So... Cyrus began his rapid rise to power as the king of Amshan. He overthrew his Median overlord, um, and he plundered the Median capital at 50 BC. He established his capital, okay, at uh, Pasagade, perhaps to commemorate a nearby victory over Median forces. And then he moved against the Lydian king, um, Croesus, achieving final victory in 546 BC when Sardis fell to the Persian forces. The Ionian Greek cities of Western Asia Minor also, under a force of arms, came under Persian control. And so as you can see, Cyrus was kind of on a conquering spree, expanding the empire. He, he made additional conquests into the east, um, in, including into Babylonia, cutting off uh, supply lines for them. And then uh, Nabonidus, the last Babylonian king, provoked an internal crisis when he left the city of Babylon for 10 years, spending much of the time in... Um, Kima. In his absence, he appointed his son Belshazzar as co-regent during the last few years, and, and during that 10-year period, Nabonidus did not participate in um, the going-ons and the big festivals and the New Year's festival, which, if you remember, when did Persia come into Babylon? They missed that big New Year's festival, right, when everybody was celebrating. And so, this caused, uh, his absence caused probably a lot of unrest along the among the Babylonian people and offended the, the priests, etc. And, of course, that's when um, Cyrus is going to come in. Now, how does Cyrus come about? Um, well, Cyrus is the, the offspring of a marriage between the royal houses of the Medes and the Persians. Okay? And so, if you look over here, okay, Astyaga's daughter, all right, married... The Persian, Cambyses the first, and that birthed Cyrus the Great. And so, for the sake of allies and peace and prosperity, you know, so their kids, we've seen this in the Northern Kingdom and the Southern Kingdom, that happened. Now, that was not a good wedding um, for the results that took place afterwards. But, and so, Cyrus then, okay, later leads a revolt against his grandfather in the Mede 550. So this is some time after the fact. So he throws off these shackles, if you will, because uh, they're a vassal of the big Median Empire. If you remember that map previously, uh, Persia was just this little small you know, fist down here, and, and, and the Medes had the, the big empire. So he soon made alliances, okay, including with Babylon, resulting in 
Haran going to Babylon and Cyrus winning two battles against the weakened Median Empire. So if you remember where Haran was, all right, let's do a quick review here. What's this? Okay. What's this? Sea of Galilee, Jordan River, Dead Sea. Okay, good. And then. Uh, Euphrates and Tigris. Okay, good. So um, Jerusalem's about there, and then Haran is about there, all right, give or take, right? So when Abraham left Ur, okay, they had gone to Haran, right? And then after that, he had come over to Canaan. So Babylon wanted Haran, and so in this alliance that uh, was made between Cyrus and the Babylonians, okay, they got Haran. And then um, Cyrus began winning additional battles. And so he is, he's keeping the peace. He is uh, making alliances, but he has a long-term plan. And his long-term plan is not just to be allies with Babylon. His long-term plan is to conquer Babylon. So he marches west, like I mentioned, and takes Sardis and continues. And then he advanced into India to the east, okay, and Mesopotamia to the west. And so he, he's covering areas here, here, um, and then eventually he's going to go all the way here and here. All right. Um, so as he continues his rise, all right, to power. <coughs> um, you can see. This looks kind of similar to the map I just drew on the board, just more detailed. So you see all the arrows going all over the place. So he's going to the east, he's going to the west, and all the way up we had mentioned to Lydia and into Sardis. Okay, So we're talking quite a ways from his, his capital here. And here you can see it, um, Pasargade right, establishes his capital there. Ecbatana. All right, back on the map again over here. So you can see how he's continuing to uh, increase and expand the area. As he overthrows the, the, uh, the Medes. So if you remember from our conversation last week with Babylon, all right, what flows right through uh, the middle? Well, the river does, all right? And so what is it that um, Cyrus is going to do to take Babylon? That's right. He's going to cut off the river. Okay? And so that's what they do in the middle of their big festival. All right? The uh, Euphrates River. So he goes right up the Euphrates River, okay, into the city. And he's able to take the city with basically next to no um, fighting. I'm going to try to shut off the internet and see if it speeds this up. All right, Cyrus is known for what is called his uh, persuasive, persuasive propaganda or persuasive campaign. He encouraged those he conquered to worship their own gods, whoever they chose. 
He allowed people to return to their homelands. He ruled um, for nine more years after the fall of Babylon. And he died after suffering wounds in battle in 530 B.C. And so part of this uh, campaign of his, this persuasive uh, propaganda, was very uh, endearing to, I mean, imagine that you're the conquered people. And in the past, and with most other empires, what happens is um, they subjugate you, they turn you into slaves, they force you to uh, follow their practices and their ways, they bring in their gods. But what Cyrus did is kind of unique, it's the opposite of that. And so what that did is a couple of things. This is also one of the reasons probably that Babylon fell um, hardly without a fight. Because Cyrus went in with this uh, almost a a hand of peace. I mean, there's a sword in the other hand, but, you know, uh, he's offering a a much uh, less harsh way than 45 uh, verse 1 treasury to be given to support the project. The stipulations of this edict reflect accurately the general policies of Cyrus, known from other royal inscriptions, including the famous Cyrus Cylinder um, that's located in the British Museum. So Cyrus pursued a more beneficent and tolerant policy towards Cyrus than the Assyrians and the Babylonians did. So you can imagine that if you are now uh, taken, and maybe you had previously known, or maybe your grandparents or parents had told you stories um, about the Babylonians, etc., or even the Assyrians, then uh, you would probably be a little bit thankful that you were falling under Persian control instead of the former Babylonians, or um, even before that, the Assyrians. And so... Uh, the first return that uh, came back was in uh, 538. It's about 1,000 mile or longer journey that has to take place. And <coughs> this would be the map that it would look like. Okay, And so from here you can see Ezra and Nehemiah's the probable route is in red. Okay, Ezra and Nehemiah's probable route. And you can see that at this point, the green area is the area that, that Persia is overseeing or controlled. Okay, the empire of, of Persia. Now Isaiah 45, 1-5, it says, The Lord says this to Cyrus, his anointed, whose right hand I have grasped to subdue nations before him, to disarm kings, to open the door for him, and the gates will not be shut. I will go before you and level the uneven places. I will shatter the bronze doors and cut the iron bars in two. I will give you the treasures of darkness and riches from secret places so that you may know that I, Yahweh, the God of Israel, call you by your name. I call you by your name because of Jacob, my servant, and Israel, my chosen one. I give a name to you, though you do not know me. I am Yahweh, and there's no other. There is no God but me. I will strengthen you, though you do not know me. Now, there's no uh, real evidence that Cyrus ever became a believer or anything like that. But this is one of the awesome uh, prophecies, predictions, demonstrations of the sovereignty of God in Scripture. The hundreds of years before Cyrus is even born, he is named in prophecies um, by the prophet Isaiah that God gave him of what was going to happen. And if you caught in the the passage that I just read, again, it's Isaiah 45, verse 1 to 5, the the idea that God says in the middle of it, so that you may know that I am Yahweh. Remember, that's the theme all through Exodus. The Egyptians will know. Israel, you will know. That's the theme all through the prophets, that you will know that I am Yahweh. But he also mentioned a couple of times that uh, you don't know me. So when we think about our theology and we think about what it means to be um, a Christian in our current age, this is knowing God. You know, J.I. Packer has a, a 
famous book. It's, I don't know how many years now, 20, 30 years. I don't know how many years it's been out. But uh, it's definitely called Knowing God. You know, if you've never read it, I highly recommend it. J.I. Packer. Um, that's what it's about. It's about knowing God. And hopefully the scriptures, God's revelation of himself and his word, can draw us closer to him, the ultimate goal is that we would know him. And so that is uh, demonstrated both in Isaiah and also the Cyrus Cylinder demonstrates the decree that allowed the Jews uh, to return to the temple as, as well. And so through the course of our, our studies. As chapter 1 says, this is what King Cyrus of Persia says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and has appointed me to build him a house at Jerusalem in Judah. Whoever is among his people, may his God be with him, and may he go to Jerusalem in Judah and build the house of the Lord, the God of Israel, the God who is in Jerusalem. Let every survivor, wherever he lives, be assisted by the men of that region with silver, gold, goods, livestock, along with a freewill offering for the house of God in Jerusalem. And then Isaiah 44, this is additional to the passage that... Um, we read earlier, this is what the Lord, your Redeemer, who formed you from the womb, says. I am Yahweh, who made everything, who stretched out the heavens by myself, who alone spread out the earth, who says, in verse 28 to Cyrus, my shepherd, he will fulfill all my pleasure. And he says to Jerusalem, he will be rebuilt, and of the temple, its foundations will be laid. So, again, not only Isaiah 45, but just prior to Isaiah 45, it's Isaiah 44, as we see on the screen. Demonstrates what God was doing, and his desire for um, the land and his people. This here is an image of the, the four winged um, being that uh, is related to Cyrus II, or Cyrus the Great, as he is also called. So the, the city of uh, Pasargade was founded by Cyrus after his victory over um, Lydia in 547. It featured a fortified citadel, originally intended to accommodate administrative and ceremonial um, events. And then in the plain below it were palaces, a garden pavilion, a gatehouse, a tower, uh, probably for the safekeeping of ritual paraphernalia. And the house contains of the stone water courses for a formal garden uh, provide our first documented example of the Persian uh, paradiso. Um, this predilection for reception palaces with the deep shady porticos overlooking gracious symmetrical gardens has echoed throughout the subsequent history of Persian architecture. So Cyrus was one of the, the, the people that began building these, these palaces that included these places for people to gather and these gardens, etc. Now, they weren't um, to the extent of Nebuchadnezzar's hanging gardens, um, but this, for the next couple hundred years, would kind of set the stage for what would be um, built. And so, this um, area... also a lot of the um, ancient Near East tradition that is incorporated into their um, architecture, etc. After him, 
death <coughs> from a, a battle going in five cities. Then um, Cambyses the second follows his father, but he only reigns for a short time. He's basically a bridge to Darius. Biblical account pretty much ignores him altogether. Doesn't know pretty much about him. So he's not mentioned. So you move from Cyrus the Great to Darius. He did realize his father's plan to add Egypt to the Persian Empire. You probably don't, but one of the previous maps we showed showed that little section of um, Egypt that had been added during his time period. And he founded Egypt's 27th dynasty in 525 BC. So he actually stayed in Egypt and was ruling in Egypt. All right. Um, and then he came home because there was unrest. And he died actually on the way home. And so he actually never quite made it back. So. so Darius becomes the next, okay? So Cambyses is kind of a bridge. Upon his death in 522, um, Darius begins to, to come to the, to the throne. this stuff that um, I try not to print. I don't know if you guys print this stuff, but you print all these images and then it kills your opponent when it's printing. So I try not to do that, but I need the uh, notes because my notes are in the, on the PowerPoint. So I copy and pasted some of them and I tried to put what number they were, what slide number they were from, and I think some of them are off. So anyway, so Darius, Darius shows up. Now Darius is <coughs> kind of coming on the scene in a little bit of an, an intrigue type situation. Um, he's from another branch of the Archimedes Cyrus and his ancestors come from. And so before this relief inscription, okay, the Behistun relief inscription was completed, Darius had the Ecbaton Library search for record of permission to rebuild Jerusalem. So these are just a couple of things about Darius, all right? And so <coughs> the the rebuilding of Jerusalem comes into this time period. And then the um, intrigue and assassinations that was going on um, that led up to him becoming king. He almost actually didn't make it, if I recall correctly. I think I have some more of the information on another slide. But... This here is actually the the relief. Now this is pretty large. It's it's in a in a rock wall uh, in that section there. I have a close up that I'll show you in uh, it actually features uh, the figures of a spear bearer, a bow bearer, and then Darius treading on the figure of the pretender um, Gamata. Now Gamata comes back to our intrigue situation, okay? So let me give you the close. Remember, Cambyses died where? Where was he when he died? Cambyses? He's coming back from where? From Egypt, right? So he dies on the way home from Egypt, okay? So he dies, and then 
this other guy, okay, whose name is, I just forgot it, Gamata, G-A-U-M-A-T-A, okay, uh, he actually comes to the throne and pretends to be the heir. And nobody knows for a little while. And so Darius and some people figure this out, and then they take him out, and that's how Darius ends up coming to the throne. So this relief, okay, that is pictured here, this is the Behistun relief, all right, demonstrates or shows some of what happened here, okay? It, it features figures of a spear bearer, a bow bearer, and then Darius treading on the figure of the pretender, Gamata, followed by nine other bound rebels, including a Scythian with a pointed hat. Hovering over the prisoners is a divine winged figure, kind of like the winged figure that we saw previously with, uh, with Cyrus, right? Representing the god Aharu Mazda. Darius is depicted as life-size, five feet, eight inches, while his servants and enemies are represented on a diminutive scale. To the left are the figures and the Akkadian, and to the right is the first Edomite version. So Edomite is the language of the um, area of Susa, which was used for bureaucratic purposes. And then there's a second Edomite version below to the left, just under the figures in the old Persian version. So this, with the descriptions underneath it, helps decipher some of the um, languages. In fact, uh, Henry Rawlinson, who from 1835 to 1847 succeeded in copying almost all of the Behistun inscriptions um, <coughs> from up in these cliff areas. Um, it's like it's not easy to get up to. Like he said, often working in total disregard of his life and limb. So by 1847, Rawlinson had correctly identified all but two of the 37 syllables of the old Persian script. So how did they figure that out? Because um, Darius had left this relief image, this basically depiction, pictograph, right? Um, picture before they were photographed of what took place and a historical account to go along with it. What are some of, the, some of the more well-known things about Darius and the impacts that he made? Okay, well, he was a very able administrator, okay? So if you know from the book of, of Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, about even, or even Daniel, okay, with the satraps, okay? Because if you, if you remember reading in Daniel, when they're going to have everybody come bow down, right? What do they do? They're going to blow the trumpets and announce, and all the satraps, administrators, etc., right, are supposed to show up. So... What are these? So these are the um, people who are leaders over the different areas. So he divides up the areas to 20 parts, and he puts a satrap over each one of those. But the satraps weren't the only people. There was also a secretary and a military leader. The secretary was a liaison. They went in between the satrap and the king, okay? And then the military leader reported directly to the king. So he, his, his boss is the king, not the satrap. So administration is one of the big things that he's known for. He also created the Royal Postal Service and the Royal Road, 1,700 miles of road from Susa to Sardis, with post stations every 15 miles with fresh horses. 
So you have a message that needs to urgently get back to the king. That's the Andrew Webb. The uh, Red Sea trade also was, was uh, increased with him. He created a standard for the weights and the measures, and he began the minting of coins. So all of these are things that he did during his time as ruler. He was the ablest administrator of all the Persian rulers. Um, and you can kind of see that. He also launched a crusade okay, against mainland Greece and reprisal for the Ionian Revolt. So we'll talk a little bit more about that in a few minutes. Let me see if my next image has the, the map of the, the road again. I've had the, the nope. <coughs> I have, I think, another image, but you've already seen it a couple of times. It had the, the road that went the 1,700 miles. So that would normally take 90 days travel okay so three months but with his stations with all the fresh horses every 15 miles he could get a message in seven days so you might i mean seven days might seem like a lot but in reality it takes three days to get mail generally right even across town go to the post office then go to the other post office then go right so seven days 1700 miles um so that's um that's a pretty ingenious uh, setup right there. All right, right here what you have is the, uh, the palace at Susa, okay? So remember, he went and he, he built a new palace at Susa, and he moved to that. And then by the time that got finished, he decided to move to another place, right? And he built another uh, palace there. So... The royal palace in Susa was built by Darius and used by subsequent kings, including Xerxes. The entire complex was constructed on a terrace raised 50 feet above the surrounding plain. There's a ceremonial uh, pavilion outside the gate to the east, and adjoining the royal quarters to the north was a big hall with massive columns, which was probably surrounded on three sides by lavish gardens. And the buildings were made of mud brick with walls of important rooms covered by slabs of stone or baked clay. And so uh, Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon was a great builder, right? And uh, Darius, I don't know if you want to say, you know, he wasn't a builder probably to the extent that Nebuchadnezzar was, but Darius uh, had um, – so that's the palace. That's, that's the layout of the palace at Susa. So that's the gate, okay? That's the palace proper right there. So here is a relief um, of the Median soldiers in the service of the Royal Persian Guard, shown on a relief made of glazed brick that was found at Susa, one of the Persian administrative centers in the, the palace where, where Darius had uh, ruled from for some time. And so you can see here the art, uh, the ornateness, the, the color. Etc. And so it's not completely new because you've seen some of this similar uh, to the Babylonians when we looked at that last week. Here's the image of 
of the Persian Empire and the road again that I was referring to. And so you can see here, well, that's a Persian guard first. <coughs> um, and that also is from the palace in, in Susa. But here again is the, the road. So remember, we're talking from all the way from here all the way over to here. Okay? Not only that, but he also um, did some work on a canal over in the Egypt area over here. And so here's kind of a, a blow up of it. So it's debated as to whether or not he actually finished the job or not, but it was finished either then or, or shortly thereafter. And uh, he is credited at least with some people uh, with it. And so you can see that he is doing quite a, uh, quite a few things. On this map, which if you have the um, the PowerPoint, okay, you can you can blow this up so you can see it better. And here you also have all of the the satraps, okay, the areas that are, are in um, with, with little circles around them. And so if you if you bring this up on your own computer um, in the PowerPoint file, you can see that for yourself, okay. Turn the internet off. I shouldn't need the internet. It should. It's on the laptop. So, but I, the, which me, which is why I don't know why it's taking so long. Uh, this laptop is getting slower and slower all the time. So around 500 um, BC, all right, the Persian Empire. So again, you see the royal road listed on there from Susa to Sardis, all right, y and you can see that the the area that we, you know, as we're looking at the Bible history, the, the only reason that we're actually even looking at purposes is we're seeing how does it relate to what God's doing with his people and, and the world. And so where's, where's Jerusalem and where's, where's Judah? This little tiny blip over here. And pretty much everything about what's happening to them is being controlled by this, this massive um, empire way over there. Also, the ancient Suez Canal or Nicos Canal is the, the forerunner of the current Suez Canal. And so it was a slightly different route, but that is the canal that we're referring to when we talk about how Darius had built a, a canal over there or had helped build it, okay? Depends on who, who you read as far as the outcome of whether or not he actually, you know, finished it or not. So Judah was a very small province in this huge empire that Persia was uh, ruling. And the edict that allows them to return back home was good news, but they did not all leave, okay? Remember, the, the Persian rulers, because they were so, let's just say, hospitable, generally speaking, um, many people chose to stay there. So we have the book of Esther uh, detailing information about people who were there, right? Um, Mordecai's there, Esther's there. These, these are people who have not returned Oh. <coughs> All right. Uh, the next image should be the the next palace 
Then Darius went on to build um, house at Persepolis. This was used um, by Darius, about and Xerxes, and uh, Artaxerxes uh, one and Artaxerxes the third. It was begun by Darius, and these are some of the remains. Obviously, it was completed by Xerxes. So this um, palace. And I also think I have uh, another image of it. There is a, a big re uh, relief and a, a wall. The Apodena, the area, the audience hall of the capital city, was covered in beautifully sculpted relief work depicting soldiers and courtiers and tribute-bearing foreigners. And so you can see the, Susan, the, the guards of uh, Susa, and they're standing attention. I'll have an uh, individual picture of that in just a, a moment. And the stairs that lead up to it all are covered with these images. You can see them all the way going up. Okay, all here, all here, all up there. So as you go up these stairs, they're, they're all uh, carved, into, carved into the stairs. The... The next one is a close-up of that, I think. So you can see just a little um, more of that. Here you have the nobles. Okay, so there. Uh, there as well here, um, you have the, the Medes and um, the Persians, if I'm not mistaken. The, let's see, one of them, I don't remember which one, has uh, the round hat. And that's how you distinguish between the two of them. So that leads us to Xerxes. So Xerxes is here behind his father Darius. Okay, so that's Darius on the throne, and then that's uh, Xerxes standing behind him. He inherited from his father the Greek problem and the various revolts going on over in that area. And uh, he suffered defeat at the hands of the Greeks uh, as well. As punishment on the Babylonian uprisings, there's two different ones. He destroyed uh, the great ziggurat in the temple of Marduk in Babylon. So when, um, when Cyrus had come in and conquered Babylon, uh, they didn't destroy everything. All right? It wasn't like what Nebuchadnezzar did to Jerusalem when they burned down the temple. Instead, it's this kind of offer of, uh, you know, you worship your gods, but we're in charge now. But uh, there was many uprisings. So when Xerxes came in, uh, Xerxes had to squash several of these uprisings. And part of these rebellions, because they occurred more than once, was so he went in and he blotted out their God. And if you remember from last week, that temple complex and how big that temple to Marduk was. So Xerxes restored Egypt to the Persian Empire. He put down the two revolts I just mentioned, and he continued to fight um, with the Greeks. Um, at Thermopylae, he killed the 300 that were left standing in the, in the path. Of, so then most of the Greeks left, but the 300 stayed, and then they, they wiped them out, but then they ended up in the bay 
And they had so many boats in there, and they couldn't maneuver around. And so they started to be defeated there. And so Xerxes uh, returned home. He was watching that from uh, one of the, the hills or the cliffs above. And he was watching the naval battles. And so then he returned home, and um, I guess he was pretty sick of war at this point, and, and he didn't uh, venture out again. So he, he stayed over in Persia. But he's best known um, to Bible students, you know, as the Persian king in the book of Esther. So he did not possess the abilities of his father, and uh, his accomplishments were fairly minimal in comparison. But he did manage to crush the revolt in Babylon and Egypt, as I mentioned. The Persian, especially as I mentioned with uh, the Greeks, so on this map, you can see some of the different wars that um, were going on, the different routes, and the different time periods. This is all in about a 12-year time period. But you see, there's quite a bit of activity. And if you've seen any of the movies related to Xerxes, Esther, etc., um, I think even in even in One Night with the King, um, if you've seen that one, that's probably one of the newer ones. Uh, I mean, it's old by now, but newer. Uh, even in that, there's a scene, you know, where he's under stress about what to do with with the Greeks. And so there was this uh, constant tension and, and battle uh, between the two. Persopolis, the royal retreat that was um, built principally by Darius and then it was finished, as I mentioned, by uh, Xerxes I. And there's an inscription here that has been found. And you probably can't read that, but it describes the building project that uh, Xerxes had undertaken. And so that's the inscription from that, which is evidence of Darius and what uh, he had accomplished. This here is a relief also of Darius and um, Xerxes. Again, you can see the different people, the members of, of the court, and Wright says, it was all pomp and circumstances in the Persian royal court with everyone in their proper order and place. Here on a relief from Persopolis, Darius I, stern of face, sits on his throne with scepter in hand to receive a visitor who approaches with a rather cowed demeanor. Darius' son and successor, Xerxes, um, from the book of Esther, stands behind the throne, learning well the rights and privileges of authority. And so that just gives you a little bit of uh, understanding. You can also see that you have um, some other guys behind with some um, weapons, etc. So that's kind of how it was. If you've watched any movies that relate to this time period, that would probably make sense to you. After uh, Xerxes was assassinated, his heir apparent was murdered by a younger brother, Artaxerxes. And Artaxerxes moved to Susa. Three years later, he sent Ezra to Jerusalem. And so... Artaxerxes succeeded his father in 465 B.C. He faced serious threats from Athens and Egypt, 
Um, the Peace of Troyes temporarily ended the fighting with the Greeks by limiting the two combatants' respective spheres of influence. Artaxerxes was especially concerned with Egypt. The mission of Nehemiah, authorized by the Persian king, likely reflects the strategic value of southern Palestine and control of the major routes leading to Egypt. So what, what does that mean? Well, what we're saying here is if, um, if Persia is concerned about Egypt, okay, it might be good to let your loyal subjects over here go back and rebuild and fortify. Why? Well, because they're your subjects, so you're still in control of this area. And who is the, one of the first uh, barriers between Greece and Persia? Who else? Take a look there. So there may be some political um, motivations there as well. But in God's story, he uses everything for his purpose as well. And this is all part of him having his people return and rebuild as he has uh, promised. So Artaxerxes needed the loyalty of the Jews in those troubled days, and he died in 425 B.C., likely marking the end of the Persian uh, kings who played roles in the biblical drama. Um, there's some debate about the Artaxerxes and the Ezra's mission and Artaxerxes II. Um, of course, the debate over time periods of years isn't new to us by this point. Um, This here is just some uh, some bowls, some gold and silver bowls that were um, from Darius and Artaxerxes' time period. And uh, then this is another uh, figurine thing from Artaxerxes' time period that has been uh, uncovered as well. He continued the practice of buying allies. Um, they had a lot of money. And so they bought people off, they bribed people. And that really, for them, worked uh, even better than trying to uh, kill them or subjugate them or force them. So Athens aided Egypt, so um, they bribed Sparta to fight Athens. Okay, you just gave them a bunch of money. What do you do with the money? Ah, you get weapons, you build up stuff, you know, and then you go fight. So almost probably mercenary kind of thing, you know? They didn't, might not have viewed it that way, but the Egyptian dynasty 27 was started. We mentioned that in the beginning of class today. And Nehemiah, the cupbearer, um, and this here, this golden cup thing, is just one of the uh, artifacts that's been found of this dewy golden cup. I mean, it's a pretty hefty-looking cup. But uh, Nehemiah 1.11 talks about how he was a cupbearer, and he moved to Persopolis after the palace was burnt. He ruled for 40 years. So that's a lengthy um, rule. Artaxerxes uh, tomb. So he had a lengthy rule, and then the the tomb here, you can see up on the, there on the screen is, is his. The, the tombs of the the Persians were uh, fairly simple uh, for the most part. His wife is said to supposedly have died the same day that he died. He died of natural causes. So. All right, so how does all this relate to the biblical story? All right, this chart here is probably one of your, your go-tos, all right, to, to how to connect them all. Uh, I think this is from uh, Tom Constable. And so 
what you can see here is first off you've got your years all right so your years are, are popping off the timeline both top and bottom all right there are a few books of the bible in there they're underlined so Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi for instance all right up at the top you've got your rulers all right so here we are Cambyses, Darius one Xerxes Artaxerxes and then you got these key events on the bottom. And so what you want to do here is you can kind of see these events, specifically the returns. Okay, so the first turn in 536 under Zerubbabel to build the temple, 49,897 exiles return. So almost 50,000 people head back to um, Jerusalem. It's a long journey. The second return was in 458 under Ezra to beautify the temple and reform the people. 5,000 more went during that one. Okay, and so in between here, you can see a couple of the other events that, that took place. For instance, temple completed, rebuilding of Jerusalem stopped here, Nehemiah's second return in, in 430, etc. But the, the main point is for you to be able to take the books specifically of Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. All right, and I'll show you in a second how they um, fit together a little better and see how the returns fit into that time period and also with the kings of, of Persia at the time. You can see Esther crowned right here in 479 in the time period of Xerxes. And so that's the book of Esther going on right there. All right. With that, So I think the next slide has to do specifically with Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther, okay? So during the, the restoration period, this is also from uh, Tom Constable. So the book of Ezra, all right? Ezra is a fairly short book, just 10 chapters. But right in the middle of it is when Esther takes place. So you don't think about this normally, but, you know, you might want to put a note or something in your Bible. Ezra 1 to 6, and then you've got Esther taking place, and then 7 to 10. Okay, so that just helps you kind of put together where these books uh, take place and what's going on in that time period. And then Nehemiah. And then for some prophets going on during that time period, okay, Haggai and Zechariah there and Malachi there, uh, question marks because if you've taken OT2 or read anything about dating the prophets, it's sometimes difficult to date the prophets. So we're not sure exactly. Where they might fit in. So, but that is the chronology of, of the restoration, and so that that's how those fit together. All right. So, the next map. It's just the province of Judah and Nehemiah's enemies uh, during the, the 5th century here. And so a uh, reference for you would be Nehemiah chapters uh, 4, uh, 4 to 6, and, and 13. So during this time period, uh, Judah, this is the purple area here. Right, so again, you can compare, Eric, with the, the maps that you have. But this area changes over the, t over the time, um, depending on what's going on in history and depending on whether you're talking before the, the monarchy, before Saul, um, or David's time period, or Solomon's, or after Solomon, after the divided kingdom. So boundaries change. All right, and so the area that uh, Judah would be in, okay, right here, 
is just north of the Dead Sea. And so every time we, we draw this picture, this is one of the reasons I do this is to get it into your head. But you can pretty much show this up anywhere and just go a little bit left of where the Dead Sea is and see the ones there for the date. All right? <coughs> These are the... Let's just try to go back a second. These are some of the the people that were causing problems to them when they went back and were trying to rebuild. And so the, uh, the issue for them would be similar to what I mentioned a minute ago. If for, for Persia, if, if he's afraid of Egypt, okay, and so he wants to refortify by sending his, his, uh, his good servants back home here, um, well, the, these people also realize that. And they also realize that if this is refortified, you know they be, they become something that might have to be reckoned with also. So they would they would rather it's not. Okay. The Darius seal. The image on this depicts Darius the first um, riding in a chariot with a bow in hand. When the Jews faced challenges during the rebuilding of the temple, Darius was responsible for providing the authorization they needed uh, to continue that construction. And so those are some more examples that um, we have been able to uncover. <coughs> I forgot where I pulled this one from, but this is similar to the other ones. You can, you can see, you know, the king sitting there, the people coming in, etc. So I try to make sure wherever I get these from, I uh, document the source. So looking at the PowerPoints, you should pretty much always see in the notes where I got it from. Um, so this one here is the, uh, the tomb, Darius's tomb at Persopolis, and the wreath relief thereof uh, up at the top. So you can kind of see that. So I just want to make a couple comments about some of the influence um, that the Persians had in addition to what we've already mentioned up here. So art was one of the areas that they have influenced and influenced the area that they were in. Also, what you need to think about as, as we look at the different um, empires, I think I mentioned this to you last week, but as the Jews interact with all these different groups of people, and then they create their own culture. So when you look at their culture, and you see similarities. So let me just make a parallel to something we discussed in our first couple weeks of, of class, you know, uh, creation stories. And so uh, is it a surprise that many groups in the ancient Near East have similar creation stories? Well, no, they, they all live in the same environment, they interact with each other. And so it's gonna be the same thing. So would it be a surprise if you see similar um, things in uh, Israelite um, art, religion, culture, et cetera, that are in the rest of the culture, not necessarily. Now, of course, you don't want to be syncretist. You don't want to mix mix your religious um, beliefs with that. But um, with that in mind, you will see some similarities. And these are just some examples of some some different art. So these are coins on the bottom right. Um, they they were only uh, minted on on the one side. That is the, the king, um, I think he's running on the bottom bottom right. 
Before I go back for for one minute, let me go back to um, to his tomb for one second. I don't know if you can really see all this, but he's he's raised up, um, and down here you can see these are all people. And it's like they're uh, they're cheering him. Um, so I just want to make a couple comments. Um, the the lifting up of the platform people. Um, Underneath there, uh, the king and his altar stand atop a great carved platform which is raised off the ground um, by personification of the land of the empire. Darius's platform recalls the throne of Solomon in 2 Chronicles 6.12, upon which Solomon stood in appearance before the assembly of Israel. Interestingly, the representation here is the only preserved illustration of a royal appearance atop a, a, a dais, a platform like that, of such dimensions in the entire ancient Near East, including... Egypt. So, because of that, this is a pretty significant um, archaeological find. So, the supporting figures on it lift up their king by assuming the ancient Atlas pose, frontal torso, arms raised above the head, and burden resting effortlessly on the outstretched images. Within the traditions of the ancient Near East, from Egypt to Iran, this pose has consistent and significant cosmic implications relating to the joyous elevation of celestial bodies. Um, and so some of their understanding of, of the world, the cosmos, theology, all of that, and how oftentimes kings are representative of the gods and, and rule in the place of or for the gods is all kind of related to that. And then I mentioned how um, multiple different you know, nations are, are lifting him up or supporting him. Um, of course, they would also, in the ancient Near East, as we mentioned before, um, believe that um, their chief god had given them the other people and the other people's gods. So they, they would see all of this as, you know, the blessing of God and the, the fact that they are, you know, doing rightly by, by their God. So that's part of the, the artwork. So the, I only have a couple of slides here on Persian art because most of them I've already put into the, the, uh, the slides elsewhere where, where they properly fit in. So here was <coughs> some of the coins and some of the other images that they, they've made. Um, bulls, wings, etc., were, were common. Um, horns of animals, etc., common throughout the ancient Near East. <coughs> the the gold drinking horn or the cup that we've we've already seen. Um, you know the ornateness, the 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 horns again there, horns, power, thrones, etc. Um, another relief here. Here you, here you have. Um, Obviously, um, a, a spearman here, um, they're riding camels. So we had mentioned in another lecture about the camels, and the camels can actually go pretty fast and are, are pretty form formidable um, cavalry. So their religion. We'll take just a couple moments to talk about uh, their religion, Zoroastrianism. Uh, there's a little bit of uncertainty about the origins of it. But uh, Zoroaster, or Zarathustra, uh, is the founding prophet. It's a little bit uh, shaky as far as exactly um, how it started and how it um, was passed down and exact beliefs, etc. So he lived maybe between 1400 and 1000 B.C. He was a priest trained in old Iranian religion, rituals, prophet, seer. He was all of those, attempting to lead people to salvation and redeem the world from evil. 
So he believed in good and evil. Right. And he's on a, a mid-path to, you know, get rid of evil <coughs> and redeem. The historical information solely is from the Gata, 17 short poetic works composed by him and preserved in a liturgy of the daily Zoroastrian act of worship, Theosophy. So we have one primary source. The Gathos show that Zoroaster lived in a time of social turmoil with bloodshed and lawlessness. This apparently reflects changes brought about by the coming of the Bronze Age, the Central Asian steppes, with the war chariot, which first was um, there about 1500 BC, giving new mobility to predatory, well-armed warrior bands. So Zoroaster was driven accordingly to meditate profoundly on good and evil and the goal of life, and finally achieved a majestic vision of cosmic unity and purpose. He apprehended Ahura Mazda as God, the one eternal uncreated being, holy, good, wise, and benefic beneficent. But coexisting with him, he saw another being, the evil spirit, Angra Manu, if I pronounced that properly, who was wholly evil, ignorant, malign, likewise uncreated, but doomed in the end to perish. So Ahura Mazda, Zoroaster held, had created this sevenfold world as a battleground where evil can be encountered and overcome. To help in the great struggle, he sent forth lesser divinities, notably the six holy immortals, who are at once um, hypostases of the power of God and independent divinities, yet also forces which can enter into the just man. So there's this whole spiritual dynamic that they come from, they can come in you, they etc. Um, further, each together with the Holy Spirit of Ahura Mazda guards one of the seven physical creations and can dwell within it if it is in a state of purity, being thus both imminent and transcendent divinities. Now, um, you can already see that there's several aspects of this that we would ascribe to God, like imminent, transcendent, or, or you know, being able to be in you. So, these complex concepts arising from ancient animatism, okay, seem both mystically and logically apprehended. And so, Zoroaster gave new dimensions to the daily act of worship, and he linked the moral, spiritual, and physical worlds in a remarkable way. Um, the great Amesha census emanated other lesser divinities, the main ones being the beneficent gods of the old religion, among whom was the lesser Ahura Mithra. These beings, like the Heptad, are called Yazatha, which means those to be worshipped. Um, they are all one of, in one essence, in one will, with Ahura Mazda, and all strive together with different functions to fulfill a single aim, the defeat of evil. So you've got, you got your chief god, you've got the lesser beings, they're all working together to get rid of evil. Um, the name of the Heptad recurs throughout the Gatos, the doctrine concerning them being with uh, radical dualism at the heart of his teaching. So Angra, he's the bad one, right? He produces his own counterforces of evil called the, the divas, the ancient war gods, who, like him, are to be repudiated, repudiated and defied. So, through his Holy Spirit, Ahura Mazda, the good god, created the world perfectly good, but in his omniscience, he foresaw angry Manu's attack upon it, which brought corruption on all things and the blow of death. Now, you could almost take that one sentence and replace it with our biblical terms, right? And agree to it, Right? Okay? So, I mean, you, you can see some, some big similarities. 
All seven creations can strive instinctively, or in the case of man consciously, to combat neighboring forces and bring about making things wonderful, restoration. Okay? He believed profoundly in the letter uh, and the justice of God, which has been called the decisive confessional concept in his religion. Um, you already probably understand or believe that God is a God of justice. The God of the Bible is a God of justice, Yahweh. Um, if you're in my uh, if you survey class today in Amos, I mean, we're going to talk about justice and justice in the prophets is significant. Like it, some would argue it is the theme of the prophets is justice. And so here you see in, in another uh, religious belief system uh, of Persia, Iran, that this idea of justice is very important to, to it. Um, he sees the two existing beliefs about life and death. He taught that everyone, man and woman alike, could attain heaven by accepting his revelation and acting justly in accord with it. But all must first be judged. When on the third day after death, the soul ascends at sunrise to the peak of Mount Hara, the mythical mountain of the center of the earth, and there its good thoughts, words, and acts are weighed and balanced against the bad. So the good and bad, right? And if the good are predominant, the soul crosses the broad Kinvat Bridge and passes up on heaven. If the bad outweigh the good, the bridge contracts, collapses, and the soul plunges down through a chasm into the underworld called the place of worst resistance, hell, where the evil spirit presides over the uh, retribution of punishment. The blessing and damned will remain in heaven or hell as spirits only until a certain time in the, in the future when there's a general resurrection of bodies and the departed spirits will be reincarnated to undergo the last judgment. So, you also have an idea of resurrection uh, in, in the religion. Among the ancient Iranians, the ultimate judicial test was ordeal by fire. Zoroaster also saw the last judgment to be enacted through such an ordeal, but on a cosmic scale. Molten metal, okay, which quickly you immediately maybe think of Peter, who says that when God comes and judges, he will do what with the earth? Religion, with Christian religion, etc. Um, and so you can see why critics and, 
would, would say, oh, there's nothing new with Christianity. Are you kidding me? That's just, resurrection stuff has been around forever. This virgin birth stuff has been around forever. So, anyways, this is preserved, as I mentioned, in uh, this one primary uh, set of, of writings, the Gathas, um, uh, or if that's how you say it, or Gitas, is that, that's like, uh, what was it in Dutch? So the idea of the the religious um, influence. Dualism is a key component of that. So when you think of it, one of the things I just want you to think about is the dualism, okay? Um, the good and bad. Also, the, the, the good works and the bad works, right? That's what the judgment was based on at the end, wasn't it? Okay, so I sum up Christianity versus the rest of religion this way. It's pretty simple. It's, it's do versus done. Every other religion, you have to do something. You do works. In Christianity, it's already been done. And so that's the difference. Um, today, very eclectic, syncretistic, and practiced in, in Farsi form in, um, in India. The unquenchable fire, the elaborate mystical temples, rituals, the exposure of dead bodies. Um, and then, you know, I could have added the resurrection on there also. So these are all some ideas that um, definitely play into. So um, how, how did this possibly play into the biblical storyline. Well, there is definitely an unfolding uh, of, of belief in the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. Um, you don't really see much about resurrection in Genesis, right? Some would argue that the first place you see something specific about it is in Daniel. Well, well that's interesting because Daniel's under what time period? Yeah, Judas. Under Persia. Mm-hmm. Which is what we're talking about, right? Which was their religion was Zoroastrianism, right? So, so you can quickly say, ah, oh, see, Daniel just got up from that. All right, well, or maybe he didn't. But anyways, um, living in that culture, though, most most likely did spark thoughts about and meditations on their own scriptures and what God had revealed. All right, so uh, the way you and I look at scripture is, is based in part on our own cultural background. So uh, we don't usually do this, um, probably, but this would be a really fun thing to do. I don't know what text we would use. But uh, we have enough variety of, of cultural backgrounds in this room that to sit down and look at a text and hear uh, different people's perspective um, and what they bring from their cultural background and what they've all been taught um, would be very interesting. So there's... Um, there's some uh, newer commentaries. Uh, they're not all brand new, but there's some newer movement and commentaries um, come out. There's African Bible commentaries. Um, the, you know, the women's movement has already done like women's commentaries for a little while. I mean, there's not a ton of them, but anyways, um, I like to kind of read as broad as I can, um, and then come back to the text, of course. So don't be um, just caught up in the Western mold. We do in the West write the bulk, the vast majority of all the commentaries and everything else on, on Scripture. Um, and so what that means is they come from a predominantly Western outlook on things, um, which may or may not be right, right? Because that's one culture in the world. And um, honestly, we're pretty far removed from 
the place where all the stuff gets wet. <laughs> so. The influence of language <coughs> is also an interesting case. This here is the trilingual tablet. These inscriptions were found at Gans, um, near the modern Iranian city of Hamadan, ancient Ekbatana. Okay, so the same Ekbatana that we just talked about earlier, right? The inscriptions to the left were ordered by Darius, and the one on the right was ordered by his son Xerxes. Three languages appear on each tablet, from left to right, Old Persian, Akkadian, and Elamite. Each inscription describes the triumphs of the Persian king. And so this allowed them to better understand these languages. Persian is a branch of the Indo-Iranian language group and has similarities to Latin and Greek. The Persian word for God is deva, related to the Latin Deus and English divine. The ancient Persians knew and used the Elamite, Babylonian, and Old Persian language. So the Behistun rock records the um, dynasty leading up to Darius and these three languages, and we already saw the Behistun relief um, earlier. Old Persian was written in cuneiform. Okay, if you remember when I showed you um, the piece of cuneiform related to uh, not thinking it was Darius, no, um, Xerxes, right? Um, that was on the screen, and I didn't have a translation of it for you. So Old Persian was written in cuneiform the language only for official court documents and inscriptions. Official correspondence was aided by the use of uh, Aramaic, language that was used from Persia to Egypt. The Aramaic script became the model for a new Hebrew script that was used to record the Old Testament. The Jews borrowed many Aramaic words. In Hebrew, for example, the word decree comes from the Persian word uh, dasa, or something similar to that. Aramaic words found their way into other languages as well. Paradise in English comes from the Persian word for garden palace. So paradise comes from the same place. So the language, again, so what was um, the common language of the time period of Jesus? Aramaic. That's connected to here. So from all the way from Persia to Egypt, Aramaic became the lingua franca, it's called, the language of the people, the common language. <coughs> And um, I think lastly is the influence of um, justice. Uh, this is not a replication uh, from Persia. This is a replication from um, biblical uh, Israel time period. But I have a, a, a snippet of a story to tell you related to this. But I mentioned earlier how they were serious about Justice. And so let me give you one, one example. Um, and, and there's kind of a paradox here, because I've already mentioned to you that they often paid off empires, right? And so, in a sense, they will bribe empires, but bribing within their culture was pretty much forbidden. So, there was a judge who was caught in a act of injustice, a bribe, and so here's what they did to him. <coughs> they killed him. Oops. That's just kind of a given, right? Then they skinned him. Oops. Then they took his skin and cut it into strips. And 
they canned it, and then they upholstered the judge's bench with that for the next judge. So think about the reminder. So every time you are administering justice or judging, you're sitting on literally the remains of the former judge who didn't judge with righteousness and justice. So um, that's sick. They were um, the, the Persians were, were much less barbaric than the uh, Assyrians and Babylonians. So, if that stands out to you, so that is it. So, as it relates to Persia, what you want to understand are the the main. So you got Cyrus and Darius, uh, Xerxes, Artaxerxes, uh, Cambyses is in there, but he's just a little bridge guy, right? You want to understand a little bit about how they expanded the empire so much. Uh, the last few things we talked about are um, just snippets of things to help you remember justice language. Um, Darius, you want to understand he, he was a good administrator. He, he set up the satraps, the provinces, uh, 20 of them, and the, uh, the royal road, the, the postal system, the courier system. Um, all of that was pretty important. You know how we normally talk about with uh, getting ready for Jesus to come, how the Romans brought roads? Well, the Romans weren't the first ones to bring roads, right? So, I mean, the Persians brought a road, 1,500, 1,700-mile road. Um, and then he did the, the work on the canal over there as well. So those are some, some of the, the highlights. What you want to connect with the biblical story is you want to connect the book, basically, of Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. Okay, boom, they all go together. Of course, Daniel is in there also. And has some uh, direct uh, connections for the prophetic literature. Um, additionally, on the prophetic literature would be uh, Isaiah's prophecy specifically regarding Cyrus. You know, what we talked about. Those are probably your highlights. So, if you remember that stuff, maybe a couple other things that were in there, then you're good to go probably. So we only have a couple weeks left. We're going to look at uh, uh, Greece. We're going to look at uh, the Bible the, as far as uh, what took place with, with the Jews. Without their temple, they're focused on the synagogues and what took place there. We're, we're going to talk a little bit about um, the Mishnah and the, the Talmud and how that all developed and how that's still part of what, uh, their practice in their uh, religion today. So Greece time period and uh, what took place with their scriptures. Those are uh, three of the main things that we will uh, finish up the semester with. So, are you all working on your papers? Just finally decided what to write. Well, that's good, Robert. <laughs> do, I, do I dare ask what? <laughs>